Good morning and welcome to the Dean's class as we continue our study on Ephesians. And this morning, we are in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, found on page 978, if you happen to have an Advent leather-bound Bible. And before we read this and you find your way there, let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you uh, have seen fit to not leave us to ourselves, but you have sent your spirit to speak uh, to us and through us. But Lord, we don't need to wait around for you to speak, for you have spoken in your word. And so as we turn to it this morning, that you would open our spiritual ears and the eyes of our hearts, that we might see your son Jesus and know what it means to be in a relationship with him, but also a relationship with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I actually read it, I want to backtrack a little bit and remind you that the first three chapters of Ephesians is uh, about doctrine, establishing strong doctrine of this church that Paul established in Ephesus, and you can go back into the book of Acts and see that ministry that took place, and certainly uh, Paul's great affection as it was the last church he visited before he went to, uh, excuse me, before he went to Jerusalem, uh, where they were convinced that he would die. And the rest of Paul's letter, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are concerned with the Christian life, the implications of this doctrine. And so far, we have seen Paul spend a great deal of time uh, talking about uh, unity, uh, talking about uh, giftedness, uh, talking about Christian maturity, which we spoke of last week. And now he says, this is what Christian maturity begins to look like. Again, if you remember, uh, last week the mark of an immature Christian was being blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine and being led astray by human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. But the mark of a mature Christian is not just one who's able to stand firm, letting nothing move you, but always giving yourselves over to the work of the Lord. But the mark of a mature Christian is to speak the truth in love, which which means to speak to childish-like or childlike believers and help lead them into the truth. It's not just standing firm, it's leading others into the truth about who Jesus Christ is. And this is a very young church planted in the midst of paganism, and you'll hear echoes of that here in verses 17 through 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. 
for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. And give no opportunity to the devil. I'm sorry. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion. That is, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Paul here certainly is getting into implications as to what the Christian life ought to look like. And clearly, for many of these young Christians in Ephesus, it doesn't look like this. And yet, Paul doesn't question whether or not they are Christians, but admonishes them, exhorts them, encourages them to press on and to forget and to lay aside your former self, which is rooted in paganism. Now here, Gentile is not simply, it does not simply mean non-Jewish. Gentile is shorthand, basically, for anyone who's not a Jew, but here it talks about something beyond just simply not being Jewish. Gentile here is a synonym for ungodliness. He defines it here as people who walk in the futility of their minds, people who are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart, and they have callous hearts, and because of their callous hearts come forth all of these terrible things made manifest in their lives. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. That's just as true of an unrepentant heart as it is of a repentant heart. Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out. And the heart is the factory which is ultimately going to show forth what it is that is at your own heart, what is at your center. And so the walk that Paul describes here is how one lives their life. How do you live your life? I've realized during COVID that I can basically behave myself in front of a certain kind of person for a certain amount of time. But with my family, being around them all the time, and I'm going to be honest with you, I'm, I'm kind of undergoing a little bit of a revival in my own life, especially as it comes to spending time in God's Word and praying and meditating. But my temper has an incredibly short fuse these days. I mean, I just flew off the handle yesterday about uh, something that the children had not done that I'd asked them to do repeatedly. Well, uh, they should have cleaned up after themselves, but let me tell you, the fruit of my lack of uh, self-control and my temper is evidence of an area of my heart that is calloused and is especially self-interest. I want them to listen to me, and I want them to pick it up 
honestly, because I want them to do it, not necessarily so they'll grow up to be uh, productive human beings and be able to contribute to society, which at this point all of us are in fear that this generation will not because of COVID. Uh, Lauren did remind me the other day that um, parenting when we were coming along was basically this. Keep your child warm, feed them, and hug them every once in a while. And it worked. Uh, So let's take the pressure off of ourselves. But if I'm honest, I am a little bit self-interested when it comes to my children's behavior these days. And so it's not just those areas of my life that are public, but what does the walk of my life look like in its totality? And it requires repentance and faith. So how the Gentiles live is in rebellion to God Or to put it another way, living as if God doesn't exist. If you're honest with yourself, there are areas of your life in which you live as if God doesn't exist. Now, when you're in church, you live as if God exists. It's a good reminder. But what about in your business practices? What about in your golf dogfight? When you go back to the 19th hole and you start sharing the jokes and the stories. We talk and we act as if God doesn't exist. We also talk and act as if God doesn't exist, at least during right now, in the way that I was talking about parenting my children. As if it's all on me. If it's going to happen, I need to be the one to make it happen. Well, that's how Gentiles do. According to Paul, at least in the city of Ephesus. But Paul says they're walking in darkness in in the futility of their minds. Even their best efforts, efforts are futile, they're meaningless. They may think that they're going in a certain direction with a certain goal and a certain aim, and yet Paul says, No, they're not. They're groping. They're walking in darkness. And the saddest thing of all is they don't even know it. And that's the difference between a Gentile non-believer and a believer who's behaving like a Gentile. The believer knows better. The believer tells the dirty joke and feels their conscience pricked and they realize, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. The Gentile unbeliever simply goes on as a matter of course, in futility. And so too this is true of those who are doing the best they can spiritually and thinking that they're actually moving toward God. We sometimes call these people seekers. But even their attempts to move toward God are in fact moving away from him. I was reading uh, something that uh, a popular author, who I won't mention because some of y'all have probably read this person, uh, and this person decided to enter into the realm of spirituality in which they said, I'm a very spiritual person, and of course as a spiritual person I've come to realize that there are many paths to God, and the Christian claim that there's only one path to God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, is really just one of many. 
Now, as lovely as that sounds and as spiritual as that sounds, that person is actually not living a spiritual life by the Bible standards. They're actually not making their way toward God. They're living their life in opposition to him, and they're moving in the opposite direction. Right? What's needed is repentance, and repentance is a word that means to be turned around and to head in the right direction. I love the way that Tim Keller describes it. He says it's a little bit like um, a friend who is blindfolded, and they're in their car, and they're driving straight toward hell. And you don't have a blindfold on. You're a Christian believer, and you can see this happening. And so you go and you say, friend, you're headed toward hell. And the friend says, no, I'm not. In fact, I'm trying to head to the beach, and I can tell I'm heading in the right direction because it's getting warmer. Well, no amount of arguing is going to get that person to turn around. But the moment that they take the blindfold off, what's going to happen? They're going to see that they've been heading in the wrong direction, and they're going to turn around. But while they're blindfolded, they'll never see or understand that they're heading in the wrong direction. In fact, they'll think that they're heading in the right direction. And this is what Paul is saying in verse 18. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Alienated from the life of God. Not kind of joined to the life of God. Not flirting with the edges of the life of God. But completely alienated from the life of God, has nothing to do whatsoever with the living God. That's how the Gentiles do. That's how unbelievers do. Whether they lived in Ephesus in the first century AD or whether they live in Birmingham, Alabama in the 21st century. And they have hard hearts. And this is because of the ignorance that is in them. They're ignorant, which ought to generate some compassion uh, toward, uh, from us. They're like the guy with the blindfold. They just don't know any better. They really are trying to do the best that they can. And in many instances, we probably ought to be gentle with them. But nonetheless, if we do see somebody headed in the wrong direction, especially if they're headed toward this precipice that is the entryway to hell, we will probably do everything that we can in order to prevent them from going over the edge. And so, yes, we may try to be gentle with them, but it also may be at some point yelling, you need to turn the car around. Now, this word that Paul uses, ignorance, is uh, a remarkable word. And from it, uh, we get, it's the same root word that we get the word ignorant as well as ignoramus, as well as agnostic. And Dick Lucas tells the funny story about being uh, a rector of a church in London where he was at, for decades at St. Helen's Bishop's Gate. And often he would get invited to, invited to these parties and there he'd be in his dog collar and some sophisticated London socialite would wander up to him and say, Oh, Mr. Lucas, do you know uh, I, I have some uh, passing acquaintance with the Church of England. I went to chapel when I was away at uh, public school and uh, yet I've grown up and I'm a scientific man and uh, therefore I'm an, an agnostic. And this happens to me sometimes too, almost trying to evoke a reaction out of the clergyman. 
And uh, the expectation is that the clergyman will shake his head and nod and say, yes, oh, you're very thoughtful. And, um, uh, but Dick says that no one's ever come up to him and said, oh, you know, um, I- I'm so sophisticated and well-learned. I- I'm an ignoramus. And yet that's exactly what they're admitting to when they say they're an agnostic. It's the same word. I'm ignorant. In spite of all my learning, I don't know any better. Because they haven't experienced the new birth, they don't have a new heart, and so their hardness of heart that is callous has caused them to give themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, you may know that Ephesians and Colossians really are parallel letters, and uh, so much of what Ephesians brings up, Colossians echoes. And I wonder if you'll turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. If you want an easy way to remember the Bible uh, Bible books, uh, God eats potato chips two times. Galatians, Ephesians, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So here we are in chips, and uh, it is Colossians 3, verses 7 through 9. This is Paul writing to the church there. Uh, In these two, uh, well, let's start at verse 5. Again, saying very much the same thing as Ephesians chapter uh, 4. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He could have easily said that which the Gentiles do. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one, one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive." And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, uh, the problem with unrighteousness is, um, to give you an illustration, uh, I'll give you one. Fitz Allison, the former bishop of South Carolina, tells the story of the Charleston couples. Two of them, uh, two couples went up to New York City. And back in the day, there were two subway lines that ran in Manhattan north to south, one on the east side of Manhattan, the other on the west side of Manhattan. And if you wanted to go from north to south, that was no problem. But if you wanted to go from east to west, if you wanted to get on the other line on the west side of town, if you were on the east side of town, you had to catch the crosstown buses. You couldn't catch a subway. There was no way to get off of the subway and get on another subway line and go east to west. You had to catch the crosstown buses. Well, these two couples from Charleston got out from a Broadway show late one night there on the west side and uh, realizing 
that they needed to get over to the east side in order to catch the subway lines, uh, they were in a state of confusion and somewhat lost, and so uh, not knowing what to do, uh, there they found uh, late at night on the side of the road, uh, tucked back in an alleyway, an old drunk. And the one Charlestonian went up to him and said, Sir, do the crosstown buses run this late? To which the old drunk replied, Do the crosstown buses run this late? Do da, do da. Well, that's a silly story, and it's funny, uh, but it has a real spiritual significance to our passage because when it comes to the fleshly line, if you want to go north to south, there's no problem. If you miss anger, don't worry. Wrath and malice and slander, you can jump on those right behind. The problem is, how do you go from that line to the line that moves from the flesh to the spirit? What's the spiritual crosstown bus that gets you on the right line? And the answer is the converted heart. It doesn't mean that you're not prone every once in a while to go back to slander and obscene talk from your mouth. But you don't want to ride that line anymore. That's the wrong line. You don't want to ride the one that go, that's on the west side. You want to get on the one that's on the east side. And you do everything in your power, that is by the Holy Spirit, to get yourself over to the line that is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the hard heart is all of those things that they're talking about, that Paul is talking about here. Sensuality, gosh, I, I called Netflix uh, the other day because I don't know, uh, well, this is a while back, but if you just go on Netflix, it automatically runs these previews of the show. And my children were watching, and all of a sudden something came up that they did not need to hear or see. And it wasn't just a sort of, oh, maybe when they're in their teens it would be okay. There will never be a time when what they heard and saw would be appropriate. And I called Netflix and said, surely there's a way to turn this off. And they said, nope, there's not. You're just going to have to live with it. And that's true. When you live in Ephesus, you're living with sensuality. You're living in a pagan culture. And we're surrounded by sensuality. And a greediness to practice every kind of impurity. One of the marks of a hard heart and even an unconverted heart is that which is that you're just seeking what your heart wants. You're completely self-interested. And whatever makes you feel good is what you're going to go after. And in the culture in which we live, this is king, this is dominant. If you try to stand in the way of anybody's self-realization, self-actualization, self-fulfillment you're going to get steamrolled. And here the Bible says, actually what the gospel does is it stands against that. And so it's no wonder that the world stands against Christianity. And I'm somewhat appreciative appreciative that the lines are becoming clearer. Uh, The riots that have been taking place out in Portland, Oregon, uh, I think that they took a remarkable turn uh, when they showed rioters burning the Bible. 
And I didn't think that it was particularly sacrilegious to burn, I mean, you ought not to burn books. I mean, that, that harkens back to another thing uh, in another time and place. Uh, but they were able to recognize, what I thought was remarkable about it was that they actually understood what the Bible was saying. I don't think that they were simply burning it because it symbolized something. I think they were burning it because of what it says. Because they understand it stands against self-interest. Fulfillment of the self over and against other people and those in your community. It speaks of sacrifice, not self-indulgence. Now here... Paul is speaking not to people who are burning the Bible. He's speaking to Christians. In verse 20, he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Not the way you learned Christ. Isn't that interesting? It's a strange phrase, to learn Christ. But that's what I was trying to say last week. If you want to know Jesus, you must learn about him. I know that in some traditions, and even here at the Advent, excuse me, people will say, well, you're just far too intellectual. There is certainly something to be said about trying to feed solid food to spiritual babies. But that's not what Paul is saying here, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about getting spiritual babies to get weaned to be weaned, and then begin to feed on appropriate food in order that one day they may be able to partake of the filet mignon. And Paul says in order to do that, you must have learned Christ and you must continue to learn Christ. And the only way to learn Christ is to get into the Word of God. And Paul is here again, not just as I alluded to, is not just saying learning Christ now, but remember when you learned Christ. I'm assuming, this is a bit tongue-in-cheek here, I'm assuming that you have heard about him and were taught him as the truth is in Jesus. Paul's saying the foundation was solid, but have you turned your back on the foundation? Maybe you're not burning a Bible in the middle of the street, but have you burned it in your own heart? Have you cast it aside? I I don't think that the American church would be in the shape it's in, especially I speak particularly of the mainline denominations, if we read our Bibles more. Uh, The ignorance around what the Bible has to say is breathtaking. And yes, I am talking about head knowledge, but that head knowledge by God's Spirit translates into heart knowledge because it's God's Word to us personally, but also as a community, which is what Paul is talking about right now. I want to say one last thing about this growing up in Christ, this learning Christ. I love how Gerhard Forday says it. He says, sanctification, which is in some sense how we grow up in the Lord Jesus, is the art of getting used 
to your justification. And so just as Paul is pointing back, if you're finding difficulty in your own life, whether you are using obscene talk or giving yourself over to sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of impurity, go back. Go back to the foundations. Go back to the gospel. Remember when. Because what you don't want to do is if you have a solid foundation, even if you begin to build something that really ought not to be built on the foundation, the answer is not, well, just keep building and maybe it'll get better. Because if the measurement is wrong in one place, it's going to be all catawampus throughout the entire building. No, you have to go back and you have to tear out that which is bad and go back down to the foundations. And in South Carolina, I was, we were just there, as many of y'all already know. Uh, one of the things I would notice in South Carolina is when an older building would be taken down, which was a, very, which was a real rarity uh, because uh, the building preservation movement is so strong there, but in the off chance that it had to be taken down because it just was not salvageable, I could always tell whether it was going to be a new building or an a new building, or they were going to build a building just like it based on whether or not they left the foundation in place. If they left the foundation in place, I knew that they were going to build a replica of what the building is supposed to look like. If the foundation is removed, I know it's going to be a completely different building. And in the same way, Paul is saying, you've got to go back to the foundation and build that according to the plans given to you and what it's meant to be. You don't get rid of the foundation. You build on the old ways, on the old paths. So he reminds them to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. You may have seen the new Jimmy Hale billboard on 280 heading east. And in it, uh, I don't even remember the words, but I, can, I don't have to see the words to know what they're trying to talk about. And in it, they have a man, and half of his face is the picture that they took when he entered into Jimmy Hale mission. And the second half is the same man, but where he now is in the midst of Jimmy Hale mission. And although it's the same man, it's two different people. And that's the point that they're trying to make. This is, it's the same person, and yet he put off the old self and he took on the new. Jesus uses a very vivid uh, story to illustrate this point in Matthew chapter 22 beginning with the 11th verse. It's the parable of the wedding feast. So you'll remember that the king gives a wedding feast for his son, and everybody from the wedding feast that's invited to the wedding feast says, I can't make it. And so the king says, go out and bring everybody in. Highways, byways, rich, poor, whoever you run into, we've got this party on. Tell them they're invited. And so everybody comes in, and the wedding hall is filled with guests. And then Jesus picks up, 
But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him and hand him, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now you may hear that story and say, well, that's unfair. I mean, this guy showed up when the original guest didn't show up. Isn't the king being harsh? Well, in Jesus' day, these parties would go on for days, and whoever came, and if they were not properly attired, it was the responsibility of the host to provide a wedding garment for those coming into the feast. So what we know is that this man was invited, he gets to the wedding feast, he's offered a wedding garment, and he says, nope, these will do just fine. And he goes in and behaves as if he belongs there. And of course, what the king sees, and the point that Jesus is trying to make, is if you're going to enter into the wedding feast of the son given by the king, you have to put on the wedding garment You have to leave your old tattered rags, your old self on the outside, and put on the new self and come in. That's that great old gospel song. I'll tell you the best thing that I ever did do was to take off the old garment and put on the new. And Paul's reminding them and encouraging them, put off the old self. That's representative of your former life representative of the things of the flesh when you were walking in darkness and the futility of your mind. But now you've put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're in his wedding banquet. And as you put on that new wedding garment, that new self, there's a need to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. There again, Paul goes to it. The renewing of your mind. You need to have your mind renewed. You need to think differently. Don't think in the old patterns that you used to think. Christianity is not just a supplement. It's central. It's fundamental. It consumes you. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And of course, this garment will mark you out. When you're acting like the Gentiles and you're wearing your old garment, you fit in. But like Joseph of old, with his coat of many colors, it not only marked him out visibly, but remember it provoked his brothers to jealousy. That coat was representative of the fact that Joseph was loved more than the others. And so when they saw that coat, they didn't care very much for it, and they certainly didn't care for its wearer. Now how is it that we live with one another? Don't walk as you once did in darkness and the futility of your mind. Take off the old self and put on the new. Therefore, therefore, as you're a new creation, 
Having put away falsehood, you've left it behind. You've repented. You've turned. Having put away, all, away falsehood, let each, of, each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. I think that that's funny. Uh, Jesus, uh, Paul here is allowing you, be angry. You can be angry, but not sinful anger. Righteous anger, like Jesus driving out the moneylenders in the temple. Anger in and of itself is not sinful, but it can be. But you should try and indeed strive that the sun might not go down on your anger, giving no opportunity to the devil. You know, I've learned it's never too late to say you're sorry. It's never too late to pick up the phone. It's never too late to reach out. But how many of us think, well, so much time has passed, what difference will it make? So much time has passed, it will just be awkward. Your awkwardness is a very small price to pay to reconcile with a brother or a sister. Don't let the year go down on your anger. Don't let the decade, if you've already let it go down with one sunset. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see, it's an opposite effect that Christianity has on people. The thief uses his hands to steal for himself. And now, as a believer, and there were thieves in the congregation, reformed thieves, don't let them steal anymore. Let them use their hands for manual labor. And then, as they are able to make a living... Let them have something to share with anyone in need. It's the opposite. It's a different, it's, it's a complete 180. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who fear. We have a very inappropriate way of paraphrasing this in our family. When someone is using words to tear somebody else down, our response is, edify, stupid And it's a reminder to us, is our talk edifying or are we using words like missiles in order to destroy the other person, even in the life of the church? Gossip amongst Christians is insidious. And I know it exists in our own church. And it's even worse now because we're not able to gather together and really be around one another. And when you're away from one another, the gossip becomes easier, doesn't it? Is your talk edifying? Is it building people up? Is it encouraging them? And even when we do have something that is hard to say to someone, it may be that we need to say it because that's what's going to build them up. Brother, sister, you're going in the wrong direction. You're reverting back to the old self. Even though that's a hard word, it's still building up. As fits the occasion, be smart about it, be tactful, be discerning, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, this may seem completely obvious to us, but as Paul is talking about how we interact with one another as Christian believers, he's assuming, and rightly so, that as Christian believers, we have a life together beyond our Sunday gatherings. 
The Bible says that you can't have a relationship with Jesus without a relationship with other Christians. Let me say that one more time. The teaching of the Bible is that you cannot have a relationship with Jesus without a relationship with other Christians. Unless, of course, you happen to live on a desert island, which, if that's the case, you're not watching this anyway. Uh, Or you live in an area where there are no Christians. But the problem with living in Birmingham is there are a lot of Christians. But if we're honest, our, our closest friends Christians are the people that we do life with. Are they Christians or are they the people that we're closest to for other reasons? And I know that in our own tradition, this can even be encouraged. There are people who like Anglicanism because it allows them to come into their pew, not say hello to anybody, bow their heads, pray, have the service, and then get up and leave and go and not see anybody again until the next Sunday. You know, the most interaction that you have with a Christian is the limp handshake at the back with the rector and say, nice sermon. The Bible does not envision, envision, envision that as Christianity at all. It doesn't comprehend it. That's a cultural creation in, uh, especially in places like the American South. And how many of us have had the experience that I had growing up? When I came to know the Lord Jesus the summer after fifth grade at Vacation Bible School, uh, I had a church that I began to attend simply because it was the closest church that I could walk to. My family wasn't going to church, and uh, the law frowns on uh, Uh, 11-year-olds driving, and so I I would walk to this church, and it was not a particularly warm place, and through middle school and high school, I became heavily involved in Young Life, where the time that I spent with my friends in Young Life in in small group Bible study, and what was called campaigners, which was a larger group Bible study, and bringing people to club to hear the gospel and the fellowship that we enjoyed with Christians and non-Christians alike that we were introducing to Jesus. It was like whiplash when I went from Young Life into my home church. It was cold. It was not particularly welcoming. It was an orthodox place. It was a Christian place. But it actually drove me to start attending a Pentecostal church. Because my friends and I all had the same dilemma. The church that we grew up in, the church that we're going to. You know, by the time I could drive, we were going to a place that was warm and welcoming. And that meant driving 15 miles down the road to a Pentecostal church. Now, I'm not a Pentecostal, uh, no offense to anybody who is, uh, but I was going there because it demonstrated the warmth that is expected in the New Testament of Christian communities, of caring and loving for one another as the Lord commands us to. And as a congregation, even though we're not gathered right now, here's a real opportunity for us to figure out how to live life together. I hope that during COVID you've realized just how much we take our church family for granted. I hope you miss one another. 
If you don't and you're just looking forward to getting back into the pew and not talking to anybody, but just simply going through the motions, that is a deficient Christianity. And you are missing out on one of the greatest blessings that Christianity has to offer, a family, a family adopted by God. And it's grievous to the Holy Spirit when we live life in that way. Because we were sealed by him for the day of redemption. That is when we came to faith in him, as earlier on in Ephesians uh, talks about. Encouraging us to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. There's an active part, there's an activity that is expected of us. We have to be active about it. We can't just simply say, you know, malice is going to go away. Slander is going to go away. But we have to put it away ourselves. We have to check ourselves. We need to check one another. And I love this final verse that we're going to talk about today. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How many of us expect the worst out of one another? Some of us may have calloused hearts because indeed you have been betrayed in your life. And you find it very difficult to trust people. But if the pattern of your mind is to assume the worst, to attribute nefarious purposes to anything that anybody says or anything that anybody does, it doesn't demonstrate kindness or tenderheartedness or forgiveness as God and Christ forgave you. You know, I wonder sometimes with the way that we treat one another. And for all the justifications that we make as to why we're treating somebody poorly, who might have willfully wronged us, and the wrongness of it is beyond dispute, and yet we're determined to be so hard-hearted against them that we forget that what we've done to the Lord Jesus Christ is far worse than anything anybody's ever, been, ever, anybody's ever done to us. That's the point Paul's trying to make. As God in Christ forgave you. The church is a community of forgiven people who have to actively, actively forgive one another. We're called on to forgive one another. And even when people have wronged us, we don't know their story. We don't know why they've wronged us. And as Christians, if they are Christians, are they objects of our compassion, as we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, or are they objects of wrath? Because the fact of the matter is that you're going to be together in heaven one day. And the church, here and now, is meant to give the world a glimpse of what heaven will look like. What provoked people to jealousy, the unbelievers to jealousy? We read in Acts, 
Non-believers looked at the church and said, see how they love one another. Brothers and sisters, put off the old self. Take on the new. Love one another. Forgive one another. As God and Christ has forgiven you, strive for unity, this beautiful gift that God has given his church. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about what that looks like, love made manifest in the life of the believer. Let's pray. Lord, um, as I read this passage, I realize that I'm asking, do the Crosstown buses run this late? Thankfully, Lord, your bus service is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, where we can get off the flesh train and get on the train of the Spirit. Lord, help us to see our blind spots where calluses still remain on our hearts. And Lord, that by your Spirit we might put away the old man and take on the new. And as ever, Lord, that we would keep our eyes focused on you and understand that the Christian life is the art of getting used to being justified by your Son, by his cross and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.